Welcome to Psychedelia. I'm your host, Georgette, and I combine storytelling from diverse voices and cutting-edge science from researchers to ignite a conversation and remove the stigma around psychedelics. If you're curious about psychedelics or a self-proclaimed psychonaut, this podcast is for you. For Psychedelia's first episode, I interviewed Leonara Russell, who goes by Leo, on ayahuasca and how it helped her become a better parent. We also touch on the importance of women in psychedelics. Leo serves as the Executive Director of Decriminalized Nature Washington. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist with 18 years of experience and provides therapy services to clients facing civil commitment due to their mental health and chemical dependency issues. Her early career started as a provider of cultural-based counseling in the Native American community with the United Indians of all tribes. She currently volunteers with the Seattle Indian Health Board in their chemical dependency department. Additionally, she is interning with the Organization for Prostitution Survivors, where she runs a chemical dependency group focused on the intersection of feminism and addiction recovery. Without further ado, our conversation on ayahuasca and a healing parent. Hi, Leo. Thank you so much for joining me in Psychedelia. I'm so appreciative of your time. Thank you. I wanted to learn more about your experience with psychedelics. You mentioned that for you, one of the most profound experiences was with ayahuasca a few years ago. Could you tell me where you were in life that led you to want to experience that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. Um, so it was actually more like 11 years ago, 12 years ago at this point. Um, I was a state social worker and I was working uh, for CPS, so Child Protective Services. And at the time, I was going through a very rough custody battle with my son's father and experiencing a lot of um, just inner turmoil and depression. Um, and I was able to be functional. So I was able to be a functional parent. I was able to, you know, get my son to school. I was able to get him to like after school lessons. I was able to, during my time of, of co-parenting, I was able to be present with my son in terms of taking care of him physically and attending to his needs. Um, but what I found is that I, um, there was kind of a sad place in my heart. Um, that I had a lot of grief around uh, my desire to raise my son in a specific way. And I had a lot of um, control issues around that. So during that time of the difficult custody battle, I, um, you know, I had done psychedelics before, like, uh, you know, throughout my life, you know, here or there, what have you, especially um, when I first started at college at 16 in Massachusetts. But, um, you know, I feel like I had not benefited the way people talk about having these transformational experiences that really fundamentally changed the trajectory of their lives. Um, I wouldn't say that that had ever really been my experience um, in a huge way. So um, it was just completely out of the blue. My um, my friend Rick mentioned that a friend of ours was a mutual friend was had gone off and, and joined this strange cult where they drank ayahuasca. Um, and 
later on, I found out that people within the community or people that take the medicine, they sometimes talk about how you'll mention the word ayahuasca, and some people will not hear that word. Like, it's almost like they just, it just floats over their radar. They don't, they don't even ask about the word. They don't know the word. They don't, they don't even hear the word almost. But some people, when you say the word ayahuasca, when you think about like the spirit of the medicine, like it having its own spirit, some people, it's almost like there's like almost like you'll observe like a note of recognition. They'll be like their ears will kind of perk up. They will say, what's that word you just said? Right. So when my friend mentioned that our mutual friend had joined a, joined a cult, you know, most people would be like, oh, poor him. You know, that's too bad. That poor guy. But I was like, really? I was like, what cult? How do I get in? What, what's the medicine? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I reached out to the mutual friend and he met me at Tully's Coffee at um, on Alki Beach. And he sat down and he talked to me about his experience. And he talked about the strangest things. He talked about being in ceremony and seeing little creatures working on healing his body, like literally working away at healing his body and that these were somehow like his experience. Um, so he described a very... Uh, amazing journey. And he suggested that I read this book, um, if I wanted to attend to be part of their ceremonies, like in their church, which is the Santo Daime, which is out of Brazil. Um, and so I read the book that he suggested, and it took me like six months to slog through it. So it wasn't like a rushed process for me. It was like this very slow process. Um, and then finally, I said that I was I was ready. And he said, Oh, well, you know, our next they call them works. He says our next works are like the biggest of the year. And Padrino Alfredo, who's like the head dude comes from Brazil. And these are like 14 or 16 hour works. These are not works that people want to start out with. And he's like, plus, we stay in teepees. And, and it's so funny, because for me, I get these sometimes like little like psychic flashes or something. And I'd had this flash like right before all this about teepees. And I was like, oh, I have to come because like I had had that, you know, thought about teepees. And I'm like, no, 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 I, I have to. Right. So I went down there. And um, at the time, my boyfriend was like, not into any of this. You know, he just was like, you're this is this is crazy. You shouldn't be doing this. You know, he wasn't very supportive. So I went down to Oregon and um, in Ashland, where um, Jonathan Goldman is, the, the head of the Santo Daime. And they were doing these um, works uh, one day and then taking a break and then the next day. So it was going to be two works, right? Um, and they were being held at a synagogue. Um, and the rabbi, who uh, is the head of the Ashland Synagogue, he um, participates once a year in these ceremonies. So it was crazy for me because, you know, I'm Jewish and like this was, um, I don't know, I just felt like this was like a sign, like the rabbis doing it in this like cool town and there's like a hundred people here. Um, and for me, my first uh, experience was fine, except uh, I, I felt like I purged something, they call it purging. They really like honor the the throwing up, they don't call it throwing up. They, you know, in Western culture, we have like a real... A uh, weird issue with throwing up. You know, we we don't want to look at it as a, like a therapeutic thing. Uh, in the Santo Daime, they they want you to throw up. They want you to purge. They want you to get whatever is inside you out of you, right? So for me, when I purged um, with that first ceremony, I really felt like it was like this vile, ugly, like condensed kind of energy that had been rotting inside of me, like this poison, right? For me, it was my custody battle, right? My grief about my son's father, my grief about how my son was being torn between these two homes and the divisiveness, you know, things that just broke my heart. Um, 
And I found during that time, I wasn't present for my son emotionally. Like I, I loved him and I would, you know, read him bedtime stories and give him hugs and kisses and things, but I, I wasn't really emotionally present. You didn't feel connected. I didn't feel um, happy about life. I think I felt like life had fucked me over, you know, and I'd gotten a raw deal and I loved kids so much and I loved my son so much. Like why, how could God do this to me? How could Hashem do, do this to me? You know, I was a very angry person um, inside, right? So um, the second day we went to this like vineyard and everyone just had a potluck and just kind of chilled and I felt very uncomfortable. I felt very raw. I felt very vulnerable. I My only friend there was kind of off with his girlfriend. I felt very exposed. But I forced myself to go in for the second day and I've kind of observed that with people is that if they only do one ceremony, it kind of feels like it's skimming off the top, like whatever kind of junk you have on the top. And then the second ceremony is more like coming full circle. So I, I always encourage people like, hey, you know, you might want to consider doing two. The second day for me was light and beautiful. It was a dancing work where they dance. Um, it was it was amazing, but it, it was a bizarre culture. I mean... I just read this uh, article Jonathan Goldman wrote about his first experiences of doing uh, the medicine, and um, it's surreal. I mean, it's a totally different culture because they do it in such a, um, you know, it's, it's really it's its own culture. So what I found is that um, I felt drawn to the medicine, and I felt drawn to the medicine in a way that that felt like um, I had found a source of healing, and I felt like it made me a better person. And I felt like it made me um, more present and I was able to be a, a good parent in my life. Were you ever worried about the stigma behind psychedelics? What were your preconceptions about psychedelics before engaging in this ayahuasca ceremony? I think I've always been supportive of psychedelics, like having experimented like when I was young, like 16 and, you know, up and so forth. And I mean, I always saw their therapeutic potential, I think. I I don't think I was really raw, raw psychedelics until maybe I had that huge transformational experience with um, with the ayahuasca. You know, I wouldn't say I was against them. I just wasn't, it wasn't something I was so passionate about. And after the ceremony, did after the second day of the ceremony, did you feel renewed? How did you feel afterwards, given that you said you were very unhappy with life prior to that mm -hmm, ceremony? Mm -hmm. So I don't feel like it was like an instant fix. Like um, I felt like they call it work for a reason. Like they call them works for a reason because you're really kind of working with your own shit and working with where your own battles are. Um, I felt like it transformed me slowly. But like, you know how I mentioned that first that first healing where I purged that vile content, getting that out of me, that poison, hating my ex. Do you know what I mean? That's not going to help my son. Hating myself for hating my ex. That's not going to help my son. Do you know what I mean? Like getting that vile content out. For me, it felt like almost like psychic surgery. Like that first uh, session, that 14 hour session, for me, that felt like we're going to go in and we're going to cut out the cancer. You know what I mean? And you might have to go and you might have to get, um, you know, all kinds of radiation, you might have to get all kinds of healing, and you might have to go and be on this healing journey from your cancer, but we're going to cut out the cancer. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that you phrase it that way, because I feel like some people 
believe that you have one trip and it solves all of your problems. And it's not like that. You have realizations. It helps to get that surface level things sorted out. It bubbles things up to the surface for you to realize, oh, this is what I need to work on. Oh, this is how I'm truly feeling. So it helps you kind of get to the root of things. How was your son feeling throughout all of this? And did things get better between your relationship with him after the ceremony and after putting in your work for healing? I felt, yeah, no, I feel like whenever we do our healing work, our kids benefit, right? Because you're showing your children how to do their healing work, right? Because they're going to have their own like karmic baggage in this world or whatever they're dealing with in this world. They're going to have their own struggles, um, I think my son saw me as a happier person and, um, and I think it benefited our lives. Like I, I truly believe that. So at one point as a process of doing these, uh, kind of being on that healing path, I was able to be my own attorney through my custody situation. And through that process, I was able to kind of stand up for myself and, and get some better, you know, resolution to my parenting situation but that took a lot of hard work and originally I felt so defeated I was ready to lay down and just be like okay I'm just a victim like life has just treated me horribly I'm just gonna lay down and die now like what's the point you know and to see myself to witness myself kind of get resurrected like no honey get off the floor don't keep letting life kick you like say no to life kicking you you can tell life no you're going to stop kicking me you know you can stand up for yourself and you can fight and you can win and it's not winning against him it was never about him it's it's winning against you know just the negative the negativeness of the court situation and so i see a lot of parents who are defeated by the court situation and custody situations and it breaks their heart and it break and it affects the children t- tremendously so i felt like I wanted to infuse that situation with love. So instead of feeling resentment towards my ex, I wanted to pray that, you know, that he finds happiness and that our child finds happiness and just be in a place of love, you know, and I felt like that resurrected hope in my life. Were you able to talk to your ex-husband about this experience? Were you able to talk through it? Or did this experience just (laughs) help you navigate things? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. That's so funny you mentioned that. Um, Actually, we were never officially married. But um, no, I think at one point in in one of the um, court battles, because there were many, he made reference to like, and I think she's done psychedelics or something. And so I would not say that that was like, something that was like, would have benefited me to to share with him, like, hey, I'm feeling, you know, so much more happy about about trying to be, um, to lay down the sword, you know, fighting with with your the parent of your child is not going to help help your child. So um, and sometimes the other person may not realize their part. And so maybe we can teach by owning our part, you know, because I had my part in all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that was part of my healing, was recognizing my part. Yeah, knowing that you had the power to change things. You can't control his behavior, but you can control I can totally your own control my own. Your mentality. I can control my own, and I can own my part in having created this. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of times when we get in that victim place, we don't own our part. Yeah. So. And so what has your involvement been in the psychedelic community since that ayahuasca experience? Mm-hmm. So I've been involved in the Santo Daime and I took my star with them and have been kind of in and out of that community for about 10 or 11 years, maybe 12 now. Um, 
I'm active with like the Seattle Psychedelic Society. Um, I'm active with um, various other psychedelic groups in, in the area, but more about promoting healing and new models of healing specifically as we look at, you know, decriminalization and the next steps after decriminalization, because I'm really focused on the future beyond decriminalization. Like decriminalization is my goal, but that's but that's just one goal. It's one minor stepping stone. Yes. Yeah, so what is the more immediate goals? My immediate goal um, or my long term goal. Let's talk about both. Yeah. What are okay. the near and long term goals for you within okay. psychedelics? Okay. So I'm a political activist, right? I'm a mental health therapist, um, and I've worked in the chemical dependency field a long time, and I've and I've worked in the Native American community for a long time as well in Seattle. Um, I really want us to be a diverse base of folks. I think a lot of times when you talk about kind of white grassroots efforts, there's a lot of um, white people who have privilege, and then later on they'll kind of pick up people of color after they've kind of gotten their gotten their momentum. And they can do that in a tokenized way. You know, we can do that as white people. So for me, um, you know, I identify as white, even though, you know, my mom's family um, is of Jewish heritage and my um, and my dad has um, Penobscot uh, native, you know, blood in his line. But um, I think when we talk about white privilege, it's just really important to kind of look at who's been in the psychedelic community and who's led that revolution. And for me, the psychedelic revolution of the 60s, like when I think about the beatnik generation, and I think about people that were hugely influential for me, you know, like Timothy Leary, or um, uh, Dennis McKenna, and so forth. Like, when I think about those leaders, I, I think about a more masculine psychedelic movement in the past, like in the 60s, in terms of who was allowed to lead. And so you see a lot of idolization of like these white men, and I'm not saying that they don't deserve it. I think a lot of them were groundbreaking um, people, just human beings, you know, but I do see that this psychedelic revolution feels more feminine to me. And, and for me, that embodies like, I think true feminism embodies helping all people helping the white man, you know, even if he's a Trump supporter, helping the black punk rocker. Like I think true feminism, as I see feminism is, we're going to do it differently. We're not going to exclude anyone. So um, in my political activism, I'm trying with the Decrim Nature Seattle effort and with the Entheo uh, Society of Washington to, um, to really be uh, leading in different ways and to incorporate and uh, recruit people from all walks of life. Yeah. And I think that's a great point that you bring up these like white men, you know, that were very prominent figures in the psychedelic movement in the 60s and even now, they did amazing things to progress things, to progress the psychedelic movement. But we do need more females. We do need more minorities. We need more representation, just more diversity across every aspect of the psychedelic industry, whether that's in research or leadership positions or lobbying, anything, anything related to psychedelics. We need more diversity and representation. And in the pharmaceutical industry, whenever there's research done on medications, a lot of the times the people they recruit are white males. 
And within psychedelics, that's why we need more diversity. We need people thinking, hey, how does the psychedelic affect women differently than it affects men? Because women's bodies are very different. The way our brains work are (laughs) completely different. So we need those people in there thinking and bringing on more diversity across every aspect. I completely agree with you on that. And also, men and women lead in very different ways. Women are much more collaborative and men are much more competitive. And in this field, we need more collaboration. We need more collaboration across every field, but I think the psychedelic movement could really benefit from having more women and minorities involved. And in your space right now at Entheo, you have a lot of representation and minorities and women involved, correct? Definitely. Yes. That's that's our strength. You know, you're going to make me cry. Um, <laughs> such beautiful people, but like so diverse, like class-wise and political-wise. And I mean, we've got the white male Trump supporter and we've got the, you know, the Native American uh, woman who is a warrior and like we could do a Scott everyone. And for me, that feels so beautiful. Like for me, I feel like we can create a new way to lead, you know? And so when people are like, you're not leading the way that we're used to people leading, you know, because a lot of times I feel like uh, women historically have been taught to, um, to fight over power or there's limited, um, you know, pieces of pie on the table for them. And so they'll, you know, fight their sisters for power or, or they've been taught that they need to lead the way that men have been taught to lead. And I don't know that men always want to be taught, you know, be leading the way that they've been taught to lead either. And so I think when we can gently accept women as teachers, like respect women and sh- and honor and show um, appreciation to women, I-, I find that a lot of times we don't realize that we are incorporating misogyny into our into our thought process. You know, we might have different expectations of women. We might have different expectations of women as leaders. So I try to really gently remind people like, hey, you know, what I'm discovering with you is that when I do what you ask, you like me, right? And and a lot of times women have been taught like to be people pleasers. So that kind of works fine if you're like my male mentor or whoever. But what I find is when I disagree with you, you don't like me, right? So how do women deal with conflict, especially women leaders? And you talk about this collaboration. I feel like I share leadership with all these people in the group. I don't really feel like I'm hung up on being the top dog. I feel like where my strengths lie is that I'm good at encouraging other leaders. So when people come to me in the group and they're like, hey, why don't we do this? I'll be like, hey, why don't you do that? <laughs> I support you. I'll let you know if I have a problem, you know. But I, I want everyone to feel like they can be a leader and go and talk about this movement. It's for all of us. Yeah, I I love that, that you kind of give them a platform, that you're very supportive and you kind of are there as a figure to help them yep. as well. Because a lot of Own people- their power. Could, yeah, a lot of people could be like, that's a great idea. Thanks, mm-hmm. go back, mm-hmm. do your job. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take on this. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. No, and I feel like I push people and that's not always comfortable. And, um, and it's hard to be a leader. I think regardless of gender, it's hard to be a leader. Sometimes I feel like I've been frustrated because I, I feel like people don't recognize like in the quota system, you know, how sometimes they'll say that, that there will be an Obama before there'll be a Hillary, like, just that, you know, sometimes we don't recognize how hard it is for women to come on up. 
And in the grassroots psychedelic effort, there aren't that many women that are leading as far as big cities in in the United States. And so whether we have a quota system or not, I I just want that recognition and acknowledgement because there there hasn't been any women leaders in the grassroots uh, psychedelic effort as far as the history of the world for a major city. Like we haven't seen that before in human history. And what I get a little bit tired of is kind of like this Anne Rand style of feminism that's like um, that justice or uh, the... I'm spacing on her name, but you know, the woman, the Republican that just got uh, added to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Amy. (laughs) Is that what you're going to call her? Okay. So Amy, for me, embodies a lot of that Anne Rand feminism because she's like, you know, I can just slip in here with one of the boys, you know, no big deal. Like we don't have to make a big fuss about it. You know, I'm just, I can be just like the boys. Don't, you know, don't even notice me. I don't have a vagina. You know, (laughs) And that doesn't really appeal to me. I think we need to say, wow, women have never been in these positions before. Let's rejoice and recognize and acknowledge them. Um, the other day I looked on Amazon and the number one movie or Netflix, the number one movie I think it was, or Amazon, um, is the movie about the woman who's the uh, chess player. The young girl had just came, you know, this this movie about this chess player. And I was like, wow, people are just craving for that, you know, kind of the divine feminine awakening. Like they love the fact that they're covering women chess players. I love that because, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen on a newspaper, on the TV, on the internet Whenever there's some sort of chess competition, automatically like all males. Even in my head, when you mentioned like chess player, mm-hmm. the image of like a male. You got an image of a up. man, right? So watching this movie, I would recommend it was amazing because I loved it. And she talked about like, you know, this dance you do, this kind of ballet you do with the mind and with the chess and, and looking at the female mind and, um, and that point where you know, the mind, we don't look at women's minds as much, you know, we kind of have the absent mind of professor, but we don't have the equivalent for women. We don't kind of let women be kind of the goofy absent minded professor. So yeah, the the genius women kind of sometimes get lost in the, in the folds of history. So. Yeah, they do. Um, but if I do want to talk a little bit about the treatment center idea. Yes. Tell me more about okay. this treatment center that you plan on opening up in Seattle. Yep. I'm super excited about this. This is like a dream come true. It's very exciting stuff. Yes. So there's a building in Seattle that's pretty much um, owned by the city and it has the capacity to do what we want. It has the, it meets the specifications of what we need. And so we just kind of need the city of Seattle to hand it over to us, maybe like a 30 year lease and then cover the insurance. Um, Because when you're doing psychedelics in a center or in a building, um, there may be some issue with insurance. So I'm open to ideas if anyone wants to contact me about the insurance idea. That's my my biggest practical issue right now is the insurance. But um, so there would be um, a screening process um, for folks coming into the treatment center. And right now I'm talking to the head of the ayahuasca church about having a, a point, which is like a church within the building that would federally protect us. But that means that people could come and do ayahuasca, Right. Um, and what I said to the head of the ayahuasca church was, I want you to do what they did in Brazil. Because in Brazil, there's one kind of renegade faction of the ayahuasca church who's working with street addicts, who's working with the with the most uh, touched by mental health and chemical dependency, you know, the, the real hurting on the streets. What is the goal of what kind of people are you hoping to bring into this center? I think I think it's going to be open to anyone. But I, I think we need to specifically kind of focus on the idea of if we are partnering with harm reduction, and um, National Drug Policy Alliance. So um, uh, basically, Seattle was approved to have a uh, open um, 
site for drug for using drugs, right? Open injection site. So what we are going to be asking the city to do is instead to authorize an open ingestion site. So a site where people can openly ingest uh, entheogens. So, you know, uh, plant and fungi medicine that that are entheogens. Um, and then we're going to be asking them for help with creating the site, right? Because we know that the current drug, uh, you know, treatment model doesn't work for the majority of people. So we are asking not only for a site where people can have open access to entheogens, but um, where we're going to be partnering with the University of Washington, partnering with harm reduction, um, having a ketamine center on site. And a lot of times ketamine is only available to wealthy people. You know, it's really a jacked up uh, service in a lot of ways. Like if you go on the dark net, you can get ketamine. But like for normal people, it's like $800 to go get an IV of ketamine and insurance is not covering it. Yeah. So um, there would be classrooms, there would be a library, there would be security, you know, people would be screened, you would go through a process, there'd be a counselor, doctor, treatment rooms, garden, you know, kitchen, outdoor green space for ceremony. Um, But it wouldn't be just like letting anyone in. It's really, you know, kind of going through a screening process. Would this be inpatient, outpatient type? Both. Both. And how, what other people would you be partnering with in order to make these ceremonies? So there's the Sacred Garden uh, community in Oakland. And I think at this point, like the plan is to try to partner with them. Because right now when we're looking at federal protection, let's say the city of Seattle decriminalizes all of these entheogens, right, that we want to use. And then on top of that, they the city lets us open the open ingestion site for the entheogens because they're willing to consider something because nothing else is working. So they're willing to give us a chance, right? Then we're partnering with UW, we're partnering with Harm Reduction, uh, partnering with Seattle Psychedelic Society, partnering with um, Sacred Garden Community in Oakland, which would give us federal protection as a church. Do you know what I mean? If we wanted that extra layer of protection, just to not have the feds in our business. And also because we we kind of consider ourselves to be a church in a way because we, we all recognize within our community um, that these medicines have a a spiritual component and that we are benefiting spiritually. And then, um, yeah. So how would you, have you thought about how to go about choosing which plant medicine for the different people that come? Mm -hmm. No, I hear you. I hear you. So like, let's just run through a sample. So the person contacts us and they, they want to come in, but they are just getting clear of heroin or what have you. So we would probably have them go and um, get clean at a, you know, a detox facility. Um, and meanwhile, kind of partner with them and, and talk to their counselor and talk to the nurses that are working with them on their detox, see if they're ready to come on over, right? Maybe they come on over and enter the inpatient, but they're not ready yet. You know, they need to have some clean time before they could consider something like Ibogaine, right? Mm-hmm. So Ibogaine is, you know, if you go to Mexico, you can get a fancy Ibogaine treatment and get off a hard drug. In Canada, I believe as well. So the U.S. is really behind on the Ibogaine game. And you have to ask yourself why. If there's so much money in treatment and most people are not getting better, you have to ask yourself why some of these treatments are being suppressed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If people have cancer, then they have the right, if they're dying, to do, you know, whatever they want. There's that, you know, law that got passed or whatever it is that allows people, there's like a psilocybin effort right now. There's an attorney that's working on an end-of-life psilocybin effort right now, just like in Canada, they just Mm -hmm. had that. Yeah. Right. So if you are struggling with drug addiction, which in a sense represents like end-of-life because you could kill yourself, why can't these people have access to Ibogaine? It makes no sense. 
So in that case, you would be working with the therapist, the counselor, the doctor, the nurse to kind of assess people who you know, are ibogaine practitioners, whether this person is ready when they're ready, if they want to do the ibogaine. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then having that practitioner work with them, right? Someone who's a practice ibogaine practitioner, which we would have like a screening process and make sure that they have education. Maybe they come from a treatment center in Mexico or Canada, you know. That's an absolutely fantastic idea, especially for it to be centered in Seattle, which mm-hmm. is a very progressive city. Mm-hmm. What will you name it? Mm-hmm. Well, right now it's a... Uh, we have just like the Entheo Society, but as far as uh, as far as the treatment center, I don't know. I drove by there yesterday. To be honest, you know, I just I am just in love with this building. For me, that building is so symbolic. Yeah. Um, it's a building where it housed people who um, didn't have homes and didn't have families. It was the the homeless youth. And when I think about their unrequited dreams, I kind of get choked up because I worked in foster care for so long and I was a foster parent. And, you know, these kids like feel like no one loves them and their families have rejected them. And uh, it's real hard for them not to create a different trajectory in their life. So I feel like for me, this building has so many kind of like hopes and dreams and ghosts. But like, could we create some new energy here? Can we be cathartic and have some alchemy and create some beautiful energy out of this building? And what's the timeline looking like right now? Mm -hmm. What are the different steps that you would have to take? Mm -hmm. So I want city council to decriminalize entheogens by tomorrow, by Monday morning. Okay? (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, you're asking me what I... Yeah, no, that would would be amazing. Okay, but the thing is, it's just happened across the nation. They literally have no excuse. Mm -hmm. They have zero excuse. It just got decriminalized in Oregon. Right, right. This is, I mean, if we are a progressive city and we have one of the most progressive city councils we've ever had, they have no excuse. This should be happening now. Upstairs in my uh, dining room, I have all of these books for city council, Michael Pollan's book that yeah. I that I want to deliver with drag queens because, you know, everyone gets excited about drag queens. The, <laughs> the conservatives hate them because they read books to their kids in school. And then, you know, the liberals just love drag queens. So, um, you know, I've just got all these bright ideas for like how to create some, you know, that could get us on Fox News, you know. The, the drag queens, but um, just anything to get their attention, right? Because we're like, hey, over here, decriminalize. So they really have no excuse. They have no excuse at this point. So that would be tomorrow morning. And then by the afternoon, I would like um, the um, National Drug Policy Alliance, uh, major donors like Dave, uh, David Bronner, but other folks, um, uh, the city of Seattle to agree to give us the building on a 30-year lease. And for somehow to work out the insurance piece, because there's a uh, open injection site in Vancouver, BC, and obviously it's a building. I don't know how they insure how they handle the insurance, but you know that's the practicality. And then um, we just need a bunch of money, right? And we need the UW to agree to work with us on this, which um, they told me I just need to write this up, and then they'll present it. Um, I need all the harm reduction people to kind of come together and support this, and and. And that's a step for them. That's a little bit hard for them, right? They can they can see an open injection site is fine, but to actually see these these plants as medicines that can get people off these drugs, that's kind of a shift culturally for some of them. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Mental shift. Well, they've really been just ma- you know programmed into that twelve step mentality. And I went to the National Drug and Alcohol uh, Conference in Florida last year. I mean, it was a joke. It's like a thousands of people still doing 12 step. And I was talking to some guys that were doing harm reduction. They're like, we can't even talk about harm reduction. They're like, we can't even talk about harm reduction here. And one guy was like, I can talk about ketamine. He's like, but I can't. There was a doctor from Chicago, but he's like, I can't talk about psilocybin. And I'm like, 
God, you know, and I, I presented a um, abstract for doing a presentation for this year's conference. And it was about psychedelics. And I was like, you guys are gonna have to deal with this. Psychedelics are coming down the turnpike. Let's talk about it. And they rejected it. They, wow. They rejected it. So they were not People ready. People need to really start talking about it. But they're, I mean, these institutions are not ready. So for the yeah. harm reduction people to change their mindset from this 12-step rigidity, they need a little push. They need the the communities at large to say, hey, harm reduction folks, hey, drug and alcohol treatment folks, you need to look at the research. You need to open your mind to the research. So um, once we have like the protocols in place and everything, I'm thinking that we could open up the center next year, you know, and a lot of it is about uh, going in and renovating and creating treatment rooms and um, thinking about, well, how would the Santo Daime be here? And that's a federally protected church. And how do we want to do our screening process, like for people coming in? Um, and, and what do we want to base the, the model for, you know, how how payment is going to happen do you know what i mean because i can see folks that have medicaid and are poor and on the streets and have nothing and want to come and be doing inpatient right and they have nothing to pay and medicaid is you know they they aren't going to support this model right Mm -hmm. so how are we going to fund that person and do we have um donations that fund that person do we have city of seattle contributing and you know what i mean because i think if we can show that this is a successful model right imagine what we can do we can go around the world and recreate this yeah the ripple effect it's not that hard no it's not that hard to do these people coming together is not that hard creating the actual space is not that hard the medicines are there none of that is that hard it's really just city council Mm -hmm. well i'm super excited for you and i hope next time i'm in seattle next year that you are several steps closer to make that a reality Me too. because that would change so many people's lives it could change the, the world better. no it could change the world mm-hmm. no it truly could change the world so thank you no thank you and i'm just curious uh just some like final words like what kind of advice do you have for parents who are struggling and have maybe not considered psychedelics as an option for healing you mean for their kids? Like, for themselves. Oh, for themselves. Um, I think that talk therapy does not work for everyone. I think there's a lot of recent literature out there that suggests that people can become re-traumatized by the mental health system. I think that we put too much faith in the mental health system as it's currently um, uh, operating. I think that for a lot of folks, we live in a very stressful society. We live in very stressful times. I think mental health is the most important thing that you can maintain. I think that we are holistic beings. So it's your physical health. It's your spiritual health. It's your mental health. It's everything. But um, I think it's just really important to, uh, if you are not drawn to psychedelics, no one should be pushed into psychedelics. But if you are open then I think looking at uh, Stamets, Paul Stamets, uh, most recent research on he's doing a, a microdose study that's being done kind of informally with people on an app that he has created. And the research is phenomenal. I mean, it's showing that people are having a lot of success. So I would suggest to folks to stay open. And it may be that you do a, a plant medicine that um, that changes your life or you know scares you and you have to confront some stuff but i think integration is key so you had asked me previously in the interview like did i feel fixed after that one ceremony or something and i think it's really a lot of it is about the integration so you have some 
groundbreaking realization about your life or your stuckness or your own healing and getting out of your own way and being your own best friend and loving yourself, right? But then come down to earth, come back to this, you know, unhealthy society or where people may not be on an elevated plane and they may, you know, treat you shitty or, you know, you may have a bad day. So how do you incorporate that into your everyday life? Because I see a lot of folks that struggle with integration. So I think it's really about being open, but also uh, acknowledging that folks can't just do this medicine and then expect to be healed they really need to kind of do the work yeah it's not a magical pill that's gonna Mm -hmm. fix everything Mm -hmm. it it's a huge help it's Mm -hmm. a huge push bubbles things up to the surface for you to work through Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i completely agree thank you so much leo for your time i'm so excited once again for the treatment center that you are working on i really do hope to see it become a reality because it would change so many people's lives and that's that's what psychedelics do they they change people's lives uh for the better and i would love to see them benefit from it thank you thank you thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed this episode go to psychedeliapod.com where you can find links to all of my social media so you can connect with me. Whatever platform you're listening on, you can support me by hitting the subscribe button and sharing this with a friend. The next episode premieres in two weeks. Until then, I send you all positive vibes and have a trippy weekend. Music